In Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11, it says that eternity is written on our hearts. And that's true of every human being. There's a sense, an innate desire uh, that every human being has to live forever. We struggle with the idea of not existing. The late Christopher Hitchens, former atheist, no longer an atheist because he's deceased and he knows the truth now, emphasized how his greatest fear in dying was not judgment or an afterlife, but that life would actually go on without him and that he would miss out on all the things that we would get to see who, who continue to live. There is a desire in humanity to want to see one's life matter, to seek purpose beyond our years on earth. See, we all know that we're going to die, but what happens is many seek to create something beyond themselves that, at least in their perception, will not die when they die. Human beings feel the need to make their mark on the world, to leave what is called a legacy. We all realize to one extent or another that what we do now in this life will echo into the future generations. And in many ways, how we live will affect the lives of future generations. But for some, leaving a legacy is all about what they do. Benjamin Franklin said, if you would not be forgotten as soon as you're dead, Either write something worth reading or do something worth writing. For others, their legacy is sought in their children or in the continuation of their surname. Others seek a legacy by dedicating their lives to serving others. In the golden age of Athens, the Greek politician Pericles said, What you leave behind is not what is engraved on stone monuments, but what is woven into the lives of others. Now, as true as that is, it can also be the highest form of selfishness, as the pursuit of one's legacy would swell to such a great importance that it would overshadow the kind of service that God calls us to, for example, in Matthew chapter 6, where he says, when you give, don't sound the trumpet, so that you could be praised by others. But when you give, don't let your left hand know what your right is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. See, seeking a legacy goes against that idea. Christians are not exempt from the selfish pursuit of legacy. Dr. Dobson refers to the Christian's legacy as their greatest gift to future generations. Christian author Shannon Adler wrote, Carve your name on hearts, not tombstones. Sounds like she stole that from Pericles, but carve your names on hearts, not tombstones. A legacy is etched into the minds of others and the stories they share about you. You see, a a legacy, the way many people consider it, is about passing yourself on to another generation. It's really about extending one's own story or one's own memory. Hillsong pastor John Gray said, I worship because I'm fighting for my kids to have a spiritual legacy. And the best legacy I can leave is that they would catch me worshiping. Now, that may sound good, maybe, but you hear what the goal of his worship is? 
The goal of his worship is not to glorify God or to obey God, who commands us to worship him, but rather he has a temporal goal of being seen by his children so that he may continue the legacy. In the end, you're worshiping not for God's purposes, but for your own purposes, which is the definition of idolatry, worshiping for a self-seeking reason. It seems in our day, all you hear about is everyone wants to be on the right side of history. That's with the whole abortion debate. You want to be on the right side of history. I hear this even among Christians. You want to be on the right side of history. In some way, this is the highest plane that the world could live on. They're selfish, remember? And their highest uh, manner of living would be living for their name to be extended to future generations. Now, of course, leaving a good legacy is not a bad thing. Many men and women in the Bible had profound legacies, and Hebrews chapter 11 is filled with examples of legacies to whom posterity could look back to as examples of faithful living. They left a legacy, but was that their goal? Did they set out with the purpose of leaving a legacy? Or was it simply, they were simply living faithful lives, the fruit of which was carried on into future generations? Today, we will see the faithfulness illustrated in the lives of Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, who, though they were on their deathbed and would not see the fruit of their posterity, nevertheless were faithful. They endured faithful to the end. The title of the message is A Legacy of Faith. You can also entitle it Faithfulness Unto Death. They endured faithful to the end. The source of their endurance and strength was much higher than a calling to continue their legacy. Instead, they simply longed for a future home where they would meet God. And that trickled into the next generations. Let's read from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 20 through 22, our text for today. Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 20. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. We are, of course, in Hebrews chapter 11, where the anonymous author is writing to first century Jewish believers who are being tempted to turn away from their faith in Jesus as their Messiah. Whether it was from the rising persecution that was coming from their own families or from the Roman government, their faith was being tested and tried. And the author is writing to encourage their faith, to strengthen their faith, to encourage them not to give up, but to endure until the end. Hebrews 11 is more than just a list of names. It illustrates the faith of various characters in Israel's history who persevered until the end and remained faithful. Chapter 11 opens by defining faith for us as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And it says in verse 2, for by it people of old received their commendation. And then we see the commendation of generation after generation throughout Hebrews 11. Living by faith, means to live based on unseen realities. 
It is responding to life's challenges, not based upon what we feel or see or hear or touch or experience, but based on an unseen truth. It is and was and always will be by faith that God's people receive their commendation. That is, our righteous status before God comes on the basis of faith. And this goes all the way back to the very beginning, the very first human beings on earth. It was always justification by faith alone is not a doctrine that was invented by Luther or Augustine or the Apostle Paul. It always was the one way to be counted righteous and saved is by faith. In our exposition of Hebrews, we saw this faith in the lives of Abel, Enoch, and Noah. And then we saw the victorious faith of Abraham, how he left his homeland. In verse 10, he was looking for a city that had its foundations and designer and builder is God. He was looking forward to the fulfillment of God's promises. And we see that again in verse 13, Abraham and Sarah. It says they died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them from afar and having acknowledged they were strangers on the earth. And then again in verse 16, it was their desire uh, for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. We saw last time in verses 17 to 19 how God tested Abraham's faith by calling him to sacrifice the son of promise and then providing a ram as a burnt offering in at Mount Moriah. As we move on this week to verses 20 through 22, we find that this pattern of living by faith and looking forward continues in the lives of Abraham's son, grandson, and great-grandson, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. In these three illustrations of faith, we see something quite different than Abraham, the example of Abraham's faith, for example, in sacrificing Isaac, uh, an extraordinary example of faith. We see a rather mundane examples of faith in Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph's life by comparison. Abraham was tested in a most unique and unprecedented way. Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph's faith is illustrated in simple things. Living by faith, not necessarily in an extraordinary circumstance, but still by looking forward and still by believing what is unseen. Now, in their respective lives, if we look at the lives of Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, there are many things that happened to them that required great faith. When you read the book of Genesis, I think of the story of Joseph, for example, sold by his brothers into slavery in a pit, his, his faith being tested, uh, falsely accused in Potiphar's house and put into prison for years, yet enduring in the faith. I think of Jacob enduring the rape of his daughter uh, what, and, and what, he, what he believed was the death of his favored son. But interestingly, the Holy Spirit, who's inspiring Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, chooses not to address any of these things, but rather use examples of simple obedience to unseen promises. Promises that Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph would never see for themselves fulfilled. So let's look at the three examples, one by one, beginning with the faith of Isaac in verse 20. Verse 20, again, says, By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob 
and Esau. And that order is important. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. This is a reference to Genesis 27. So let's go back. Keep your place in Hebrews. Go back to Genesis 27. We're going to look at a little background. Remember who Isaac is. He's the promised son of Abraham and Sarah, the natural son. And he was the one who was involved in that drama at Mount Moriah where Abraham bound Isaac and raised the knife and God stopped him. Well, that same Isaac, shortly after that event, met and married Rebekah, a woman chosen by God for him. And Isaac and Rebekah had just two children, twins, Jacob and Esau. Esau was the firstborn of the twins, and he would become the father of the Edomites and the Amalekites. And the secondborn twin, Jacob, whose name God later changed to Israel, became the father of the Israelites. So you have these two twins in the womb. You have Esau first, you have Jacob second. And I'm going to read the whole story in Genesis 27 because it's fascinating to me as you read this, the kind of dysfunctional situation that God uses and the author of Hebrews just doesn't even give any consideration to when he talks about Isaac's faith. He commends Isaac for his faith. But when you read it, sometimes it leaves you scratching your head. Where was the faith? It did with Sarah, right? We saw with Sarah how the Holy Spirit commended Sarah for her faith in Hebrews 11, uh, despite her many serious lapses when you read the Genesis narrative. Uh, you're going to see here, as I read this, Isaac's clear intention was not to bless Jacob, but to bless Esau, his firstborn. He was deceived by both his son and his wife, to do to make this blessing. Yet in all this, God's will is done. Let's read it together. Genesis 27, beginning in verse 1. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, and he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons and your quiver and your bow and go out to the field and hunt game for me and prepare for me delicious food, such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you, Esau, before I die. Now, Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went into the field to hunt game and to bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat and bless you before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I commanded you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies." You would think Jacob would object, right? Look at verse 11. Well, he does object, but his objection is very curious. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I'm a smooth man. In other words, how are we going to pull this off? Perhaps my father will feel me and shall see me mocking him and bring a curse upon myself, not a blessing. Don't worry, son. Verse 13. Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go bring them to me. So she went 
so he went and took them and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food, such as the father loved. Then Rebekah took the best of garments of, of Esau from her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth parts of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread, which she had prepared, into the hand of, of her son Jacob. So he went to his father and said, My father. And he said, Here am I. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat my game, that, you, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it, found it so quickly, my son? He answered, because the Lord God granted me success. Blasphemy, using the Lord's name in vain, even. Because the Lord, your God, granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near me that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. And Jacob went to near Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother's Esau. So he blessed him. He said, are you really my son Esau? And he answered, I am. Then he said, bring it, bring it near to me that I may eat my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine to drink. And when his father Isaac had said to him, come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of the garments and blessed him and said, see, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. I'll stop there for a minute. Lies, deception, blasphemy. This is not exactly an episode of Father Knows Best. If you're in a dysfunctional family, it really goes to show how God will use you despite everything. But as you read the whole story, you question, how is this faith? Isaac was fooled into giving the blessing to Jacob. Let me explain how I see it. Six points, I have them in your outline, six points that I believe demonstrate how Isaac did indeed demonstrate faith in blessing Jacob and Esau and doing it in that order, first Jacob, then Esau. And I think these six points are more than just referencing Isaac. I think they extend to the faith of Jacob and Joseph as well, as well as our own faith, that if we apply these six points to our own challenges and our own testings in life, that we'll also find that how God blesses faith. First of all, first on your outline, is the blessing was truthful. It came to pass. He carried out the blessing confidently as he prophesied the truth about Jacob. He thought he was saying it to Esau. His mind was thinking differently, but he unknowingly spoke truth. Let's read that blessing in verse 28. Here's the blessing that he gives to Jacob, thinking that it's Esau, verse 28. May God give you the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers that you, that, that, and may your mother's son bow down to you. Cursed be anyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Following that in the next nine verses, 30 through 38, as soon as Jacob deceptively gets that blessing, lo and behold, 
There's Esau at the door. He comes back from hunting and he prepares food for his father. And he brings it and Isaac is confused and then he realizes what happened. He was duped. And Esau says, can't, don't you still have a blessing for me? Is it, you only have one? Now let's pick up in verse 37. Isaac answered and said to Esau, behold, I have made him, meaning Jacob, I have made him Lord over you. And all his brothers I have given to him for servants. And with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me even also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when he grows restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. What a difference, right? It seems even far from a blessing, although Hebrews calls it a blessing of, of Esau. Both of Isaac's prophetic blessings came to pass. It would be Jacob and not Esau who would carry on the covenant promise. Jacob would inherit the land of blessing, and Esau would become the father of desert dwellers, Edomites and Amalekites, a people who lived by the sword, just as Isaac's blessing prophesied. Uh, perhaps most well-known of the uh, Edomites was Haman from the book of Esther. Isaac's blessing was faithful because it was true. Years earlier, in Genesis 25, 23, God told Rebekah, Jacob's mother, before the twins were born, he told her, he said, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body, and one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older, that's Esau, shall serve the younger, Jacob. So Isaac's blessing bore out truth, and in that way it was in faith. Secondly, Isaac believed his blessing could not be rescinded. Like the Lord's gifts, the blessing was irrevocable. So the blessing could not be changed, and Isaac knew this. He was thinking of the things to come. So when he speaks this blessing, he knows he's speaking the oracles of God. And whether he liked those oracles or not, he realized that the time that he blessed Jacob, even though that he was deceived, he realized that this blessing of the Abrahamic covenant was going to continue not through Esau, and he submitted to that truth. Thirdly, Isaac believed in the power of words. The Hebrew word for word, dabar, is the same word in Hebrew for deed. Word and deed is the same Hebrew word, dabar. And that illustrates a link between words and actions, something that we often, we have a disconnect. And, and uh, uh, James brings this out. We are forgetful hearers. Like we, we hear a word, but then we don't do it. But in God, there's no separation. So when God spoke, for example, in Genesis, he spoke and the worlds came into being. God speaks and his actions follow what he says. Isaac knew that his words set reality into motion. And you get that from the text. Look at verse 37 again. You see how when, this is happening just 10 minutes. He just gives the blessing. Then Esau shows up. 
Ten minutes later, you think that, okay, if he was simple, if this was just simply Isaac's words, he could have said, oh, I made a mistake. I'll give you the blessing instead. You know, he could have just done that if it didn't, if they weren't, they didn't have weight. But he understands the weight of his words. Listen in verse 37. Behold, I have made him Lord over you. Just that blessing actually made him Lord. Not that, not that he would be Lord. I made him with those words, Lord. He says, and to all of his brother, I have given to him for servants. And with grain and wine, I have sustained him. He's talking in the past tense, something that would be in the future, but he's talking in the, in the past tense, as if they were done. Am I suggesting that we create reality by our words? No, only God can do that. But I am saying that words carry weight. They have an effect. I remember Pastor Bill often said, words are things, words are things, he used to say. They could hurt. They could bless, and once they're said, they cannot be taken back. And even scientifically, by the way, when you speak, you're actually creating. You're creating sound waves that theoretically continue forever. Now, we don't hear them, but in theory, we are setting things into motion. Waves are being going from your mouth to, to your ear. Isaac understood the power of words. So, fourthly, Isaac kept his word to his own hurt. His yes is yes. He didn't try to manipulate the circumstances to bring about his own will. In his eyes, he made a mistake. And yes, he was deceived. But like the righteous man of Psalm 15, he swore, even if it was to his own hurt, and he kept his word. He let his yes be yes. Now, to do that requires faith, brothers and sisters. It requires faith to say yes or no to something, because whatever you're saying yes or no to is in the future, and you don't know all the things that are going to happen between your yes and the final result. So when you say yes or you say no, that is an act of faith. What happens, though, many of us, is we commit, we say yes or we say no, and somewhere along the line before that thing is actually comes to pass, something else comes up that we deem to be more important. So our yes is not yes, and our no is not no. And this is a great sin. And it's a great sin, sadly, to say this for you younger people, a sin that I see more in the younger generation. So quickly to say, I'll do something but then not carrying out one's word when something deemed more important comes up. And what's worse is justifying it. Saying, well, that was more important, so of course they'll understand. But as you walk by faith, brothers and sisters, Jesus said it very clearly, let your yes be yes and your no be no. As you walk by faith, you will keep your word. Isaac would have preferred a different result that's clear from the narrative. But his word was, was his word. So living by faith requires us to make our yes, yes, and our no, no, and not waver on that. Fifth, Isaac believed in the sovereignty of God, even in sinful situations. Isaac understood the sovereignty of God. Now, one might read this story and believe that righteousness would dictate that Isaac reprimand Rebecca and Jacob because of their deception to him. 
And it was sinful after all. And God did indeed hold them accountable for their sin. In fact, Isaac's portrayal of Jacob's deed, he said, your brother, he tells Esau, your brother has acted mirma is the word, deceitfully, treacherously. The word is mirma, the same exact word used to describe the treachery that Jacob himself would later experience when his daughter Dinah was raped. Same word, treachery. I also think about how Jacob was deceived by his own children. His own children lied to him about the death of Joseph. So there is there are consequences. You reap what you sow in this life. There are consequences for deceit and sin. And God holds us accountable. But his eternal will will be done in spite of sin. And I know people struggle with this. In Romans 9, Paul tells us very clear, this was God's plan from the very beginning. Just like Genesis 25, before the twins were born, I know the older will serve the younger. In Romans 9, the same thing, uh, Paul writes, he says, For though the twins, Jacob and Esau, were not yet born, and had done nothing good or bad, that God's purpose according to election would stand not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said of her, the older will serve the younger. See, that's why, that's the motivation that God spoke to uh, Rebecca, saying the older will serve the younger, that God's purposes in election would stand, just as is it written, it goes on, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Anyone who would say, that's not fair. He says, what shall we say then? Is there no, there is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. See, God decrees the means to carry out his will. And he does so using imperfect and sinful vessels. That's what people don't get. You know, everyone wants to lay every everything that's wrong in society on the hook of free will. That's the free will of man. That's just man doing. That's free will. No, no. You see, what we don't understand when we talk about free will is true, God will never cause someone to sin. He never commands sin and he never causes sin. However, it's very clear that in history, he decrees it when it is necessary. Isaac was upset that he was deceived by his own wife and son, but he trusted that God was bigger than the human act of deception. He saw God's will being done even in the midst of his own being deceived. He trusted that God's decree was bigger than the sins against him. And people struggle with this idea. That God is sovereign over sinful actions. They say, God is not the author of sin, as if that's a Bible verse, quote, quoting a Bible verse. And yeah, perhaps it's true to an extent. Again, I agree. God does not conceive or command sin. He never requires people to sin to accomplish his purposes. He never forces people to sin. But he knows they will sin. And there are times that he decrees that their sin would be used to accomplish his purposes. So that he decrees sin. He decrees calamity. He decrees disasters. He decrees hardship. He decrees sickness in order to fulfill his purposes in this world. Using sinful creatures. 
People are never forced to sin. But God passes over any restraint and he allows, here's where free will comes in, he allows the free will of man to do exactly what free will does all the time, which is what the flesh wants to do. And that's what he did here. He passed over restraint to allow Jacob and Rebekah to deceive their father in order that the purposes would be accomplished. You say, well, why did he do it that way? Couldn't he simply come to Isaac in a dream and say, Isaac, bless Jacob instead of Esau? He could have done that, but that was not what was needed. We don't know all the details between that dream and the blessing. This was what was needed to accomplish the purposed end. And God knows every detail and every molecule movement in between those ends. God knows the beginning and the end, and he knows the vessels and how they will respond in every situation. So he decrees the activity that is in between so that his good end, his good accomplished purposes will come to pass, even if it means some of those means are displeasing to him. And I know that's a mystery and it's complicated, but it is what I believe the Bible teaches, and I understand people struggle with that but I believe that is a consistent theology when you look at all of Scripture. Why did it have to happen this way? We don't know the answer. But we know God's will was done, right? Jacob was blessed because that was God's eternal will for that twin, for the younger to, for the older to serve the younger. He perfectly decreed it to occur in a way knowing fully the nature and character of every single human being involved. So he sovereignly oversees all the moving parts to carry out his plan. That's beautiful. Sixthly, last, and I think this is the main point, um, Isaac looked beyond his own death with unwavering faith. He looked beyond his own death. He exercised faith that was invisible at the present. He saw invisible realities. God, Isaac uh, would not die in despair. He knew that what he was saying was going to be borne out in the future. He died knowing what would come because he believed God. And as such, his faith defeated death. And this is the common theme in this section, that true faith will endure even unto death. In all of these stories of uh, Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, the Holy Spirit is showing us that the just live not by their works, but by faith. If anything, if you look at Isaac's work, they miss the mark terribly, right? He wanted to bless Esau. That would have been the result of Isaac's works. He would have blessed Esau. But by faith, he blessed Jacob first. From the beginning of history, this principle of faith Pleasing God has hold, has held. No one has ever earned their way to heaven except for Christ. It can't be done. And the only way to get there is by faith. That's the promise of the new covenant. That's what the author of Hebrews is wishing to convey to his Jewish readers in the early Jewish community. He's saying, you want to please God, the only way to please God is by faith. So I ask you today, what are you trusting in to please God? Do you believe that you will be saved on the basis of what you have done or neglected to do? If you're relying on your works today, you will be eternally condemned by those works because you will never be able to work your way to heaven. However, if you trust in the finished work of Christ, 
on the cross for you, who died the death that you deserve in your place and and trust by faith that He took your sin on Himself, then you will be saved. The Scripture says it is by grace, through faith, that we're saved. Not by works. It's not of ourselves. It's the gift of God that you would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved today. That's the glory of the new covenant, that if you confess your sin to God, you will be forgiven and given the gift of eternal life. Now let's look more briefly at the faith of Jacob. Verse 21, the faith of Jacob. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of his sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Very similar act to Isaac. Jacob is blessing his grandchildren. Let's look at Genesis 48 and read that account. Even as he's dying, Isaac's son, Jacob, who, the, who received the deceptive blessing, is now blessing the sons of Joseph in a similar way, but he's not deceived. Genesis 48. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took him with his two sons, Manasseh, the firstborn, and Ephraim, the second. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. And Israel summoned his strength and sat up on his bed. Let me stop there for a moment and just comment on the second part of Hebrews 11.21, where it says that um, Jacob bowing in worship, uh, Hebrews 11.21, Jacob bowing in worship over the head of his staff. The way Hebrew works sometimes, infrequently, but sometimes, is that the original manuscripts did not have vowels in them. So you have words that have the same consonants. And in this particular case, the word bed and the word staff have the exact same consonants. Uh, different vowels, but the same consonants. So what happens is, when the, in the Greek translation, when the Greek translated the Hebrew, they took the word bed in the original and translated it as staff, bearing worship over his own staff. And the writer of Hebrews, as always, uses the Septuagint, or the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, to translate verse in verse 21, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Now, whether Jacob is leaning on the head of his bed or he's leaning on the head of his staff, the main point here is the same. He's old and he's dying. He's on his deathbed. And it says that from his deathbed, he worshipped God. It's encouraging, isn't it? It's encouraging to people whose faith are wavering when they see a saint of God on their deathbed worshiping God. It's encouraging to our faith to see someone worshiping all the way to the point of death. There are few more encouraging testimonies than those who are found worshiping God in their latter years and even on their deathbed. How many saints of God have been drawn by the deathbed confession of the thief on the cross? He's he's bearing the just consequence of his crime on the cross. And what does he do? He worships Christ. The famous composer, Johann Sebastian Bach, on his deathbed, had an organist play one of his hymns, and he rewrote an appropriate verse to his hymn, saying this, 
Before your throne I now appear, O God, and beg you humbly, turn not your gracious face from me, a poor sinner. Confer on me a blessed end. On the last day, waken me, Lord, that I may see you eternally. From his deathbed, that's what Bach sang. Billy Graham was with Judson Van Deventer, who was the writer of the hymn, I Surrender All, on his deathbed. And Graham reports that he went to be with Christ with a smile on his face, looking forward to see Jesus. Van Deventer appropriately sang, I Surrender All, on his deathbed. Death is not something that we enjoy talking about. Uh, One of the things I love about the old hymns that's notably absent in in our um, newer songs is they often contain a verse about death. Death is not something we're used to singing about in our culture. We do everything we can to avoid it. It's been said that the old-time Christians had a preoccupation with death. There were examples of of, of uh, Puritans who would go to cemeteries to, to pray. No, they didn't have a preoccupation with death. They were realists. We all die. It is an inescapable part of life. So they sang things like, I love thee in life, and I'll love thee in death, and praise thee as long as thou lendest me breath, and say, when the death dew lies cold upon my brow, if ever I love thee, Lord Jesus, it's now. When the death dew lies cold upon my brow. That sounds so morbid, but isn't it beautiful to think about? Because you know what, brethren? I know one day there's going to be death dew on my brow. I know that that day is going to happen. And how much to think that I would love Jesus then as much as ever. Jacob worshipped on his deathbed. He endured his life as a true worshiper until the end of life. So whatever challenges we face in life, even if that it be that final challenge of death, continue to worship. Genesis 48, now back to 48. Let's skip down to verse 8 and see this blessing that Jacob's going to give to the sons of Joseph. Verse 8. When Israel, that's Jacob, when Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him and kissed them and and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knee and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim on his right hand before Israel's left hand and Manasseh on his left toward Israel's right hand and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim on his left, who was the younger. And his left hand and put it on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph, And said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on and let the name of the fathers Abraham and Isaac and let them grow into a multitude in the midst 
of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand and moved it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you, Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. So similar to Isaac's blessing, Jacob, on his deathbed, though he would never see the future, blesses his grandchildren in a very specific way. The illustration of Jacob's faith is similar to the faith of his father, Isaac, in all of the same ways that we just went through. Uh, the blessing was truthful. It was borne out in history. The blessing was irrevocable. Once he laid his hand, Joseph could switch the hand, but it didn't matter. Once he laid his hand, it was irrevocable, even if Joseph objected. They submitted themselves to God's sovereign plan for both boys. And primarily, again, Jacob, like Isaac, looked beyond death to the future with an unwavering faith, as faith does. A faithful life, brothers and sisters, will remain faithful unto death. That is a legacy. That is a testimony that is passed on to future generations. Live by faith to the end. Endure by faith. Live a selfless life that even the final enemy death could not stop. There's a Greek proverb that says, a society grows great when old men plant trees whose shade they know they will never sit in. What a picture that is. When old men plant trees whose shade they know they will never sit in. That's a legacy. Rather than worrying about name or reputation, just live your life in light of the future day when you will no longer be here. As you live by faith, you're setting up the next generation to live likewise. That's your legacy. And it's not your legacy. It's ultimately a legacy of faith. This is what Isaac passed to Jacob, and Jacob passed to Ephraim and Manasseh. Thirdly, finally, let's look at the faith of Joseph. Very same principle, verse 22. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Once again, main idea of the author is show you what? Joseph's faith endured to the end. Remember the main goal of the epistle. Everything comes back to that main goal. Encourage endurance in the faith. So now I'm going to use Joseph as an example and say, look, Joseph's faith endured until the end. How did Joseph live by faith? How did Joseph demonstrate faith? He looked forward. He trusted what God said he would do in the future. Let's look at the original record of this. Turn to Genesis 50. Genesis chapter 50, the very last words of the book of Genesis. They record the death of Joseph, the patriarch. Genesis 50, verse 24 through 26. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up 
out of this land. There's his prophecy of the Exodus. He will bring you up out of this land that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Now Joseph lived most of his life in Egypt, but he knew it was not his home. So he speaks at the end of his life. And as he dies, he reminds his brethren, brothers, there's a promise coming. This is not the land that you're going to inherit. Egypt is not your home. Joseph never met Moses. Moses came a generation later. But he knew that there would be a deliverer who would carry God's people out of Egypt and into the promised land. Even when there was no reason to think that was necessary because things were going well for them in, in Egypt under Joseph. But once Joseph was forgotten, remember what happened. They became slaves and they were in need of a deliverer. His faith dictated that God would act and fulfill this promise. And indeed, just as Joseph said, it was true. His his prophecy was true. God would raise up a deliverer by the name of Moses who would bring his people in the Exodus to the promised land. And though he would never know this, Joseph would never know this because his body was embalmed, Joseph's bones would be transported to Canaan by Moses and buried in Shechem at a plot of land that his father, Jacob, purchased during his brief time in Canaan. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. Not... all the bells and whistles and fireworks of Abraham's faith. Rather mundane, but nevertheless, a faith that is of no lesser quality. And this is the way that God's faithful people act in life. When we are faced with death, that we endure in the faith. And in this way, posterity is encouraged to endure as well. Your testimony unto death, and some of us are a long way from that here, and I understand that you say, I turned this message off, I'm too young for this message. No, (laughs) we never are. But you might have many, many years, and some of us may not have as many years, but know that your endurance to the end is an encouragement beyond your death. I'm going to close with the story of a man who certainly had a legacy, William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce, uh, if you're unfamiliar, history remembers Wilberforce as being on the right side of history. He was a champion of social justice. He was a political giant. He led the fight to abolish slavery in England. But his public pursuits, as noble as they were, was not what motivated Wilberforce. That was not his passion. Wilberforce had a passion for an inner life. He set his priorities on worship and holiness. And that's what marked him first and foremost. He was a man of faith before he was a politician. Wilberforce's inner life was his priority, and that's what really mattered to him. He was not interested in making a mark on this world or being on the right side of history. He was interested in his personal sanctification. As you read his writings, that's clear. He was interested in how close he was to God. That's the motivating force that drove Wilberforce. Wilberforce had a legacy, no doubt. 
There are many stories that are passed down about him. There's a whole movie made about him. But the fact is, the story that we hear about Wilberforce was not what was central to his life. Yes, he had a passion. Yes, he had a desire, a God-wrought desire to see the slaves set free. But rather, what he did was merely an extension of his faith. So likewise, brothers and sisters, we don't need to set up or pursue any kind of personal legacy. We don't need to worry about making our mark on this world. Instead, plant trees whose shade you will never sit under because one day someone will sit under them if God tarries. Plant trees whose shade you will never sit under merely because someone else will. You don't need to write a book. You don't have to have your name ingrained, uh, engraved on stones or a monument. Simply live by faith, and future generations will be blessed. Look how thousands of years later we're looking back and we're seeing the faith of Abel and Noah and Enoch and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and so many others. And we look to them. They have, they have a legacy. We, we look to them for guidance. But understand what it is. What, what is the scripture telling us that made them unique? It was not, they were not commended for what they did on earth. They were commended for their faith. These heroes did not design their lives with their future reputation in mind. They simply lived by faith, giving glory to God with a mindset of heaven, the future glory that is to come. And their lives on earth were full of trials and hardships, which they endured, not because they cared about their future reputation, not because they wanted to be on the right side of history, not because they wanted to make their mark on the earth. They endured and were strengthened by a higher calling. The lives of those in Hebrews 11, the life of William Wilberforce and countless others like them, these extraordinary legacies, what they have in common is they prioritized faith. We see no record of them worrying about how history was going to judge them. Brothers and sisters, live by simple faith. Face each moment in every trial. Let's get to the real application here in your life right now. You're facing a trial. It may not be your final one. It may not be the final curtain. But you're facing a trial. How are you going to face that trial? Perhaps your faith is being tested today in your current situation. Perhaps your challenge is to stay married or stay single or stay at your job or become a member of your church, or speak up to someone about Christ, or refuse to compromise your integrity, or confront sin in another individual. Maybe for some it's going to be to venture to a new location. For some it may be the mission field. It may be a difficult challenge that you're facing, but the question is how will you respond? Will you believe God's promise? Will you desire God to do it God's way? Do you believe that he will honor your faith, being unashamed to call himself your God? That, brothers and sisters, is what it is to walk by faith.